Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. What I love about Shopify is basically how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. I know we use Shopify here at Betches. And honestly, anyone with any kind of business could really benefit from Shopify. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash betches, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash betches now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash betches. Betches Media presents Betches Moms with hosts Aileen Drexler and Brittany Levine. Get ready to lock yourself in the bathroom or wherever else you hide from your kids because you'll literally never be alone again. Hello and welcome to the Betches Moms podcast. I'm Aileen. And I'm Brittany. And today we're joined by Dr. Tiffany Jones. She's a fertility and fibroid specialist. Today she is here to talk all about starting her fertility journey, treatment options, and preparing for pregnancy. Welcome, Dr. Jones. So glad to be here with everyone. Thank you. We're so we're happy to have you. We're excited to talk about this. Like I feel yeah. like, you know, people don't always talk about this kind of stuff, even though so many women go through it. And um, we're really excited to hear your perspective. So can you tell us first tell us about yourself, your practice, everything you do when you go to work? <laughs> yeah, so I am a board certified OBGYN. I did my training um, at USC for residency. And then I did a three-year fellowship in reproductive endocrinology and infertility at Mayo Clinic. I currently practice at Conceive practice at Conceive Fertility Center in Dallas, Texas. And my day-to-day is helping women either freeze their eggs for future fertility, um, expand their family, balance their families. Um, Yeah, it's a very lovely job. That is lovely. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, in terms of just like fertility and infertility, I feel like a lot of women are very private or just hush hush about it. I don't want to say it's taboo, but it's just like if somebody's going through IVF or whatever they're going through, it's they I I find that they're like more they don't want to share it right away because there's, you know, everybody's always has all these superstitions about pregnancy. So what do you think that comes from and how do you think that we can normalize fertility talk? Yeah, I think it it comes from a place where as women we feel or some of us feel that that's our duty. This is what we're made for. This is what we're bred for to create life. And when it's not happening easily, 
some people will internalize that as a as a personal failure um and it's hard to share our failures, right? It's really difficult when everyone around you is having gender reveals, baby showers, you know, five, 10 kids, you know, 31, Kate plus, you know, eight. And, and then you, you're trying to have your first baby or, or um, expand your family and it's, and it's difficult and not everyone is understanding, not everyone is tactful. And so it's, sometimes it's difficult to share that and then, it also might be just a perception that we have. People sometimes can be more um, understanding than we give them credit. And you're just too afraid to share what you're going through because you're gonna, you fear that you're gonna be judged. Right, definitely. Um, And I I like that because it's like very empathetic also for like what they're going through. Um, So like, how do you think that we can normalize it? What, What do you think we need to do? Yeah, so one way to normalize it is just for us all to be open about our struggles. I think that people feel that it's just so easy to get pregnant. And when you're getting those invitations to a baby shower, you may not know that your friend suffered from two miscarriages in her own fertility journey. And it's just that if we're open as women, if we're supportive as women, Um, if we're able to talk to each other more and just share those happinesses and those sad times um, more frequently, then we'll know just that it's it's difficult for a lot of people and no one is alone in this. Um, And just uh, being very uplifting. I also think that, um, you know, social media has played a great role in opening eyes um, to just let people know what is happening in some in some people's you know private lives whether it be celebrities or just you know regular people and also if you look at Hollywood and and movies you know just discussing it in an open format like that um, it's not just you know a one night stand you get pregnant and you have this baby sometimes it's yeah. really really difficult and stories yeah. in that stories about those things just help people know it's not just me yeah. So really it's about making women feel like, cause you're saying women feel like they've failed because they feel like this is something they should biologically be able to do. So kind of just talking about it, less of it being a failure and like, this is life and it's not so normal to just get pregnant and just talking more about making sure women feel like they, and know that it's not a fair failure. They didn't do anything wrong. So at what point in our lives should we be considering our own fertility? You know, that's a loaded question because a lot of us, um, you know, like it took me a long time to get through school just because that's, you know, the nature to be a doctor takes so long to do it. And it really depends on what your personal journey is in life. I don't think people should be forced to have babies sooner than they're ready to um, because of a biological clock. But I do think that we should be um, being proactive, you know, so for instance, people who are in the medical field, you know, if you're going to finish in your mid 
mid to early 30s, you know, thinking about egg freezing um, is something that may help you. Not everyone needs to do it, but at least you should know it's available. A lot of my friends in high school, they started families in their 20s. They were married and that was just what they did. Um, I think that it's a really personal choice. But what I will say that once you hit 35, if you haven't really started thinking about it, you need to really, just like we planned everything else, you need to be planning what your reproductive future is. Are you gonna do it as a single woman? Because I, I find a lot of patients now are being proactive in that in that regard of just saying, I'm gonna do it on my own. Um, are you gonna freeze your eggs? Um, are you guys gonna have your next child? What are, your, what are your plans? Because after 35, it becomes a little bit more difficult. Surely after 40, it becomes very, very difficult. And mm-hmm. after 42, um, the success rates, even with the, um, greatest advances like IVF are really poor. And so you really can kind of pigeonhole yourself into a, in a space that's going to lead to a lot of heartache and a lot of money if you haven't at least started opening up that conversation with yourself and then with your spouse, with your partner, with your family, if that's what you want to do. But um, you have to start thinking about it at least by 35. So, so 35, let's, that's if let's say you want to if, if you're at, at 35 and you want to um, kind of delay getting pregnant, right? You want to freeze your eggs or freeze your embryos with your partner. Um, that's when you said that's like when you should start doing it. What about if you're younger and you know that you're not ready then? Would you recommend that someone do that early on? if they can afford it, of course. Yeah, that's the that's the key. You know, you don't want to put yourself in a bind financially. But um, when you hit 30, and you know, you're on a different career path, you know, you're on a different trajectory, and you just don't want kids anytime soon. The best time to freeze your eggs would probably be in your, you know, late 20s, early 30s. And some people know ahead of time that they just are gonna wait. Some people don't. Um, but I, I do think that if you're 30 and you know that, then you should try to freeze your eggs as soon as you can. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. So what's the difference between, because you say freezing eggs, but you could also freeze embryos. What is that difference and what should people know about that? Yeah, there's a, there's a really big difference. Um, So freezing eggs, eggs are our own, right? So we have eggs and they're just mine. So if I freeze them and in five years I want to use them, that's my business. I don't have to ask anybody any more permission. Right. But if I freeze embryos with a partner, um, they're ours. And so that's a big difference because if I'm trying to secure my fertility and in five years something happens to that relationship, we both have to turn the key to use it. And you can see that in, um, 
in some, you know, like stories like Sofia Vergara, you know, it was actually her that uh, she she's the one who didn't want to use the embryos. Her ex-husband wanted to use them and they ruled that, you know, they couldn't be used. So if it was on the flip side and it was her and she was, you know, an older woman and probably didn't have the same opportunity to make new embryos with a new partner, that could be really devastating. For him, you know, men, their fertility go on for a lot longer than ours. So he still has the opportunity to create life with someone else. But as a woman, I am very cautious about freezing embryos if you're not sure what's going to happen. You know, so like for my cancer patients, you know, this might be your only shot. And if they're eggs, they're yours. If they're embryos, you better get something in writing to say, can these are mine because I might not have another chance later. Right. Before I ask about the process of doing all of that, is there a difference in like the viability or like of an embryo versus freezing an egg? Like, do you have a greater chance of an embryo surviving because that science has been around longer? Correct me if I'm wrong about that versus freezing eggs. Yeah. So for sure, um, eggs are one cell. The the embryos that we freeze typically are at what's called a blastocyst stage. And a blastocyst is about 112, 115 cells. So when you freeze them, if you freeze one cell, you got to hope that one cell thaws. And if you freeze and thaw a blastocyst, there is more likely that you're going to have a sufficient number survive that thaw. The survival rate for embryos is a lot better than eggs. But I will say most eggs will not make an embryo regardless if you would have made an embryo before freezing it or after thawing it. Um, For instance, if I have a patient um, who's using donor eggs from a 20-year-old donor, if I get six eggs, we may get one embryo from that 20-year-old donor. Not every egg is ever going to make um, an, an embryo. So when you lose some in a thawing process, you know, some of it may be from the technique. A lot of it may be that the egg was not a great quality. And again, that egg may not have made an embryo um, to begin with. So if you freeze a significant number of eggs, you typically will get enough back to have success um, if the clinic that you're going to is reputable and knows what they're doing when they're freezing and thawing eggs. Um, So I don't use it as a as a point of saying to a woman, oh, you should freeze eggs, um, embryos over eggs because it's going to have be much more successful because, again, you may not be able to use them at all if your partner doesn't agree. Um, right. Eggs being thawed usually around 70 to 80 percent or 70 to 90 percent survival rate in most clinics. So most patients will be able to thaw them and utilize them. But neither eggs or embryos are absolute guarantees um, that they'll be a live birth. Right. Could you talk through the like difference in the like the egg freezing process in terms of what the woman has to do versus like IVF versus embryo extraction, all of all of that, those different, the different process, because I feel like it all if you don't know, it just feels like it's all either all the same or too complicated to look up. <laughs> yeah, so they, they all start off the same. So um, usually um, most of us use birth control pills in the beginning of a cycle um, generally like two days after a menstrual cycle starts to 
keep the little houses or follicles that hold eggs uh, to keep them at rest. Then you take injectable medications, usually two to three times a day to stimulate those follicles that hold the eggs to grow. Um, the larger follicles will allow an egg to mature. Smaller follicles, even though an egg can be retrieved from it, the egg inside may not mature. Um, so we're trying to get those little follicles. They usually start off at really small, like two millimeters, and we're trying to get them to grow to 18 to 20 millimeters over about a two week time period. So it's a lot of injections, but for egg freezing, embryo, IVF, they're all, it all starts off the same. Once, um, and then in that uh, time frame, you're getting monitored with blood tests, uh, mainly estrogen, because as those follicles grow, they produce estrogen. So your estrogen level is gonna get higher, and that's how we know you're responding appropriately to the medication. And you also do ultrasounds, and they're usually transvaginal, so we can see the ovaries and measure the sizes of those follicles accurately. Um, after about two weeks of injections, then you um, do a final shot that will trigger the final maturation of the eggs inside of the follicles. And um, to retrieve the eggs, you do an ultrasound, usually under some conscious sedation, um, and a needle is placed through the vagina into those follicles that have fluid in the egg inside. And it takes about 10, 15 minutes to do, and that's it. So for egg freezing, you, you would be done at that point. Um, the eggs would be um, frozen on that day and you could go to work the next day. If you are doing embryos, then once those eggs are retrieved, instead of just freezing them, they're inseminated with the sperm, either the partner or donor sperm, and then they're grown out um, depending on what you're trying to do um, to a stage where they're going to either be frozen um, if you're doing IVF to get pregnant, you can potentially have a fresh transfer. And if you're doing genetic testing, um, they would be biopsied to check um, if they're chromosomally normal and gender could also be ascertained from a biopsy and then frozen. But they all start off with birth control pills and injections and a retrieval of those eggs. And then it kind of branches off from that point on what, what um, the outcome is you're trying to achieve. Right. You mentioned that you biopsy the embryos to check for, uh, to do genetic testing. Could that um, affect anything? Because you're kind of. Yeah, you know. so it, it is a micro manipulation. Um, most embryos do well, but the more you manipulate an embryo, it's not, you know, it, it, it definitely uh, has a risk to it, albeit the risk small. Um, for older women, the the risk don't outweigh the benefit um, most of the time, because in in older women, a lot of the embryos that are made will be aneuploid or have an abnormal number of chromosomes, and if they're transferred for pregnancy, they're unlikely to stick. They're more likely to miscarry or um, potentially could lead to a child with um, complex abnormalities. And so doing a biopsy, though there is some risk to it, um, will, you know, not um, 
be as um, harmful as the, the potential sequelae. Just going back to considering your own fertility, is there, so say you want to try to get pregnant, um, are there any conditions that, you know, you, if you know that you're aware of that you have that might, that you should know that might affect future fertility and, you know, get your ability to get pregnant? Um, polycystic ovary syndrome or PCOS is um, very common and definitely um, will cause some women to not ovulate. And if that's your phenotype and you're not ovulating, you're not going to have the opportunity to conceive because you're not releasing an egg. And those women, it doesn't make any sense for someone to say, try for a year, try for six months, because if you're not releasing an egg, there's no chance. So those people should get evaluations quicker and potentially um, medication to help them ovulate or different remedies to address what's going on that may help them ovulate on their own. Like I have patients who um, do uh, some weight loss and then they start having regular cycles. And so then for them, you know, trying um, without an evaluation um, after having regular cycles may be okay. If you've had a diagnosis of gonorrhea and chlamydia, those, even if it was treated very quickly, it was a long time ago, I would suggest getting a tubal evaluation because gonorrhea and chlamydia can definitely make um, tubal factor infertility um, a, a cause for concern in a patient. Um, the tubes are how the egg gets into the uterus. And so if your tube, one or both of them are not functioning, then that can, you know, destroy your fertility or at least impact it in a way where it's going to take you potentially longer to conceive. Uh, endometriosis is also something that can affect tubes. The level of inflammation um, that someone has um, can also impact pregnancy independent on tubal factor. And so if you have a diagnosis of endometriosis, um, you should probably seek help sooner. Um, males kind of fly under the radar, but um, they contribute to 40 to 50% of infertility. And so um, I would say if your partner has ever used like testosterone, um, that's something that um, is like a male birth control that no one ever tells them. I don't know why they just use it. And it's like, I didn't know it was going to affect my sperm, but it absolutely can make your sperm go to zero. Wow. And so those kind of things you would just want to, and I, inter I interact with those kind of patients all the time. It's like, no one ever tells them there's a lot of, um, uh, physicians and independent um, uh, sites that prescribe um, testosterone for males. And, you know, if, if it's something that your partner has used, you just would probably want to get a semen analysis to make sure there's no impact there that needs to be addressed. Those are the main, the main things. Yeah, I, I thank you for bringing up male fertility. How do you so how do you determine whether or not who is the cause for the um the delay uh, the infertility who, who yeah how does that how do you figure that out yeah and so and we have to be very i'm very careful just like you're very careful in choosing your words because it's no one's fault right and yeah. we're just trying to find out what the underlying issues are and so both partners will need to do a workup. Um, for a woman, the typical workup is ovarian reserve testing, which includes hormonal testing to see the functioning of the follicles um, that she has in a, in a month's time. 
typically anti-mullerian hormone is one of them. Um, follicle stimulating hormone and estrogen are another. They're done in a specific time in the cycle. But AMH is something like if you have ever seen like modern fertility um, ads, you can just, you know, order outside of a, of a doctor and um, they can give you the results. But it's a very helpful test to show you where you are um, at a certain age um, with um, how many eggs or what your egg supply potentially is at that age. Um, an ultrasound is also done. We can look at the uterus. A lot of women will have fibroids or ovarian cysts, um, potentially uh, a dilated tube if there's a history of infection. So you can get a lot of information just from, a, from an ultrasound. And ultrasounds are not done at your general uh, doctor's visits. Women will get an ultrasound if they have an active issue that needs to be addressed. Women will get an ultrasound when they're pregnant. But outside of that, when a patient asks me, why do I have these fibroids and no one's ever told me, didn't they get it on my pap smear? It's like, no, you can't find that on a pap smear. And, and they didn't have an indication to do an ultrasound. So I find a lot of pathology just on an initial visit because um, it's never probably been done. Um, in, in her lifetime. So the blood testing, the ultrasound, and HSG to test the tubes we talked about, um, that's a typical test that we do um, since that's a very important part of natural fertility. And then um, a semen analysis. I feel like the men get off very easily. Seriously. Yeah. But um, it it's, uh, gives us a lot of information about um, the, the potential that he has um, for natural fertility. And then if there's a, a problem with the sperm, it also gives us a lot of information on what potential potentially could be done or what the underlying issue could be. So if you don't already know that you have these pre-existing conditions and to like actually seek the fertility help before, how long should you be trying before you're just like, okay, I give up, like something's not right? <laughs> So if you're less than 35, typically it, it could take up to a year to conceive naturally if you don't have anything going on that you know of. And if you're over 35, we recommend only waiting for six months. And it's more because the window of opportunity to intervene is smaller, right? And right. so you don't want, you know, someone who is, you know, 38 to use a whole year and now they're 39 when mm -hmm. their better chances would have been at 38. If you're 40, I probably wouldn't even wait six months. I think that, you know, that window is so narrow that, you know, just to get an evaluation, I'm a big, big proponent of an evaluation, even if you don't need any treatment. Not everyone right. who gets an evaluation needs to go to IVF or needs to take a medication. They just sometimes need a peace of mind to make sure that everything is okay and you're at a good place to start trying and to be successful, right? But if right. you try for a year and you don't have open tubes, that's a year wasted. Well, will doctors just not see, like, let's say you're 30 years old and you're now at the four month mark and you're like, I'm not getting pregnant. I'm concerned. Will a doctor say, no, you need to wait another two months or they'll say, okay, let's just come in. Like you were saying for an evaluation, we could check it out or it depends on the doctor. I've had 25 year olds come to me and I really, <laughs> the, the biggest thing I can do, cause I do feel like you can be pulled into this psychological, like 
thing of I need treatment, I have to do this, and I don't want to fear monger any person. I want to empower them, right? And so if you have been trying for three months and it hasn't worked and everybody around you is pregnant, let's do a little ultrasound and make sure. Maybe an AMH, you know, if you want to check your tubes, but I am very cautious in going straight to treatment because it's like, you know, you're now you're going to also be investing money. So if we do an evaluation and everything is fine and you've only been trying for a couple of months, it might give you peace of mind. But if you're like, no, I really want to get this show on the road, you know, that's someone's prerogative too. It's not really my position to judge, but I don't want to make someone fearful and think that they have to have these treatments because sometimes they're very expensive and sometimes you'll get pregnant in between a treatment cycle on your own, you know, and and that's, I, I count that baby too. So say you do kind of like you go in for a consult, you find out what one or both of the partners um, can't are having or having trouble conceiving. What are the options that they can do to get pregnant, have a baby? The options are typically based on what the underlying conditions are. So if it's a male factor and it's only mild, maybe there's a little bit of a motility issue, then an intrauterine insemination can be helpful. Because if you think about um, how we conceive naturally, the sperm is deposited in the vagina and it has to swim up the cervix. The cervix is like an underwater cave with all these like nooks and crannies. There's cervical mucus. So not, I mean, most of the sperm that are deposited in the vagina don't get into the uterus. And so what an intrauterine insemination will do, especially if there's a motility issue, it will bypass the cervix and give the sperm a little bit of a head start to get to the eggs, which are typically waiting in the fallopian tubes for fertilization. Um, So that procedure is um, not as invasive as most. Um, It does require some timing. um, And sometimes it's done with medication, um, even if the woman is ovulatory. Um, In same-sex couples, IUIs are necessary um, most of the time because there is no there's no male partner, and um, sometimes they, they'll try it at home and it doesn't work um, with intracervical inseminations. Um, and then, you know, the same thing, it can definitely help get more sperm to that area. If a woman doesn't ovulate, like a polycystic ovary um, patient, or if she's been trying a year, she's ovulating, we'll super ovulate her to have more eggs um, be released, and there's more, there's more targets for sperm in that um in that way so for ovulation induction there's a couple meds that we use clomid is something probably your listeners have heard about um, more most yeah. frequently um, clomid acts on your um, estrogen receptors and so it makes your body feel like your estrogen is low and when your body feels like something is not balanced and it wants to go towards balance and so it increases the hormones that help estrogen be produced and and a byproduct of that is having more eggs released. Um, and so that can be very helpful to uh, some, co- some couples, especially those who are struggling with anovulation. Uh, letrozole is another medication that works in a similar um, way to Clomid where it helps you to release more eggs or release an egg if you're not ovulatory. It's um, preferred in polycystic ovary patients. 
And then the gonadotropins or the injectable medications will just stimulate your ovaries directly to produce more eggs. Those are the same hormones that we use in an IVF cycle. Um, so they're very strong and unfortunately they're very expensive. So for Clomid and Letrozole, we're talking about like five, $10, you know, with a coupon at Costco, but gonadotropins can be a dollar a unit and it's usually like a hundred units a day. So that adds up very quickly. That's a very, very expensive um, medications to use. And a lot of times insurances don't cover it. So, um, you, you know, it's, um, we're very judicious when we, when we use that. Um, then there's IVF. So IVF is, uh, we have kind of gone over it um, before, but um, I had a mentor who would say, like, if Clomid is walking and gonadotropins are taking a motorcycle, then IVF is like taking a rocket ship to get you to where you're going. Um, it can be very effective and, um, and especially in a, in a good age group. Um, but it's also very expensive and very timely, very invasive. Um, but it usually is about a um, about a month process if you're doing a fresh transfer and about a three month process if you're doing a frozen embryo transfer. So what would be the you say fresh transfer or frozen transfer? Um, is there ever an instance where you do want to get pregnant right away, but they're going to freeze the embryos for or eggs or embryos or whatever before they transfer them? Yes. Um, the main reason we do frozen embryo transfers is um, in some patients you can overstimulate. So typically our bodies release one egg um, at a, a time, one egg a month. For IVF, we're trying to get as many as we can. So you may get 15, 20, 30. Some people who have less um, ovarian reserve, they may get less eggs than that. But the more eggs you get, the more uh, your body is at risk for a syndrome called ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. And the pregnancy hormone, beta-HCG, um, will perpetuate that syndrome. It will keep your hormone levels high and then start to release um, other hormones that can cause you to get very ill. And so doing a frozen embryo transfer helps to prevent that beta-HCG from being made and then your body further um, being stimulated um, and, and it can prevent you from getting sick. So a lot of my polycystic ovary syndrome patients who get a lot of eggs in an IVF cycle, a frozen embryo transfer would be better because it would be less risky. Um, there is some data that to suggest that frozen embryo transfers may have a slight advantage over fresh because in a frozen cycle, your hormone levels are a little closer to physiologic. If you think about releasing 20 eggs, your estrogen level is gonna be three, 4,000. In a natural cycle, your estrogen level is two, 300. And so mimicking more of a natural cycle may have a benefit um, in some patients um, for success. So those are the main reasons we um, we choose a frozen over fresh, but fresh embryo transfers can work in some patients um, as long as it's done safely. You mentioned um, like IUI earlier. What's the difference between IUI and I IVF? 
So IUI, everything is still gonna be in the body. So the egg is gonna be released. It's gonna be in the fallopian tube. I can't see any of it. Um, and I think for fertility specialists, we like control. <laughs> and so for IVF, <laughs> I can see the embryo. I know what it looks like. I know the grade of it. I can even know the genetics of it. And so then it just has to stick, whereas IUI, it's more natural. Everything's in the body. And we know the body can function. Pregnancies can happen. But when it doesn't work, I don't really know where it went awry. I just know that the egg was released at this time. The sperm was placed in this time. Did they meet? I don't know. I can't see it. Did a normal embryo um, get created? I don't know. I can't see it. Does it implant? I don't know. I only know hindsight if it works because... If you have a positive pregnancy test, all of that stuff would have had to happen, you know, for it to have worked. But if it, you don't get a positive pregnancy test with an IUI, I don't know um, where in the system it failed. And and then and you also mentioned same sex partners. I think that's also important to talk about. What so what are options for same sex partners? How do they um, conceive? Yeah. So for same sex females, um, it I always start with you know what what do you guys envision this family to be? Because we have two women who both may have ovaries, who both may have eggs, who both may have a uterus. So who wants to carry? Who wants to use whose eggs? Um, you know, it, that's kind of important because when you're in a heterosexual um, couple, there's not those options. You know, there's only one uterus and there's one sperm sample. Um, then it's, you know, trying to match them with a donor that they are either, if both women want to um, be biological parents, then we want to choose a donor that's fit for both of them. And donors are screened for genetic conditions. Donors are screened for different infections that can um, be, be different for the the two different partners so we want to try to match them so they can potentially use the same donor if that's important for that family but mainly for two women as long as I have eggs and a uterus they can do an intrauterine insemination um, they can do IVF and they can do reciprocal IVF which is where one woman uses her eggs they use the donor sperm to create embryos and then that embryo is transferred into her partner's uterus for her to carry so then they both can feel like they're contributing to the pregnancy um, and then some women they never want to be pregnant so it's like I don't want to use my uterus but I might want to use my eggs or you know something has happened they one may not be able to use their uterus so reciprocal IVF can be very helpful yeah yeah it's amazing. Science is amazing. Listening amazing. to conversation is just I know, like, it is same. amazing. It's like what um, you could do. There are uh, so many options for so many people, like despite the fact that what, – what is the statistic for like the rate of infertility? It's about one in eight couples um, will, will experience a form of infertility. So it's, it's – that's a lot. Yeah, it like, is. Yeah, that's – and we should be talking about it more. Yeah. Um, is there anything that we haven't covered that you feel like any, that our listeners should know about when it comes to this topic? Yeah, so there's um, one thing that we didn't discuss is um, a newer technology that's super cool called Invisil. Um, Invisil for me um, is 
kind of groundbreaking and it's taking a step back from IVF. It's it's in between an IUI and IVF. And why I, I like it is because, you know, financially not everyone is in a position to do IVF. So typically, um, I think the national average for IVF is potentially about like $15,000, which is a lot of money. Um, yeah. Imbecile, We'll probably put that around ten, eight to ten thousand dollars, which is still, you know, that's nice, nice little Chanel bag. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, when we're talking about barriers and access to care, um, you know, finances is a big thing because not everyone is in a state that's mandated for coverage, and if you have to come out of this um, out of pocket. You know, before a baby's even born, you're in the hole and you just feel, you know, and it doesn't work every time the first time. And so they can really add up. But um, imbecile, the way it works is um, a big expense of IVF is actually growing the embryos um, in the lab. And so instead of growing the embryos in a lab, they're grown in a device and that device is placed into the woman's vagina and so she becomes her own incubator i love how y'all perked up isn't that cool though that's crazy that is insane a robot is inserted (laughs) (laughs) and it, it cuts the cost tremendously and for um, some women, especially like same-sex couples, um, that can be also helpful because the partner can then carry, and you know, and, and just for five days, and you're incubating your own embryos, and wow. just opening up that to people. Um, the success rates are a little less than um, than IVF, and and they're significantly more than IUI, but that opportunity um, being afforded to more people will just help more families. So I'm very excited about it. I'm, I'm very happy that people are thinking outside of the box to help get this kind of care that so many people will need, um, making it at, a, at, a, at an affordable price. And I hope the medications become more affordable too, if anyone out there is listening, because I think it's a little ridiculous. Yeah. Can you spell it? You said it's N Envisil. So it's I N V O C E L L. Invisil. At first I thought you said imbecil. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, let's spell it. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's really cool. That is cool. Like speak of science, speaking of science, like it's also amazing. And like, it feels good to know that like things are being worked on still Mm -hmm. like actively. This isn't just like, okay, these are your options. Sorry. You know, but that's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. I had no idea. And I'm sure a lot of people haven't. Is it like, is it still in trials or is this something that people are doing? It's out and about. Um, Clinics will carry it. Um, not every clinic is doing it, um, but I hope it becomes a lot more mainstream, but it is FDA approved and yeah, no, it's not, it's not beta phase anymore. It's, it's, it's awesome. out there. That's amazing. I can't wait to hear more about it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Jones. This has been awesome. <laughs> thank you for imparting all of your knowledge and yeah. wisdoms. And I hope that everybody listening learned something new because I definitely did. And so how can people follow you or maybe if they're in Dallas, come to your clinic? Yeah. So we are at Conceive Fertility Center. So it's www.conceivefertilitycenter.com. And you can reach out to me via social media. I'm at tjonesivfmd 
on Instagram and I'm also on Facebook, but not that much. <laughs> Who is? <laughs> well thank you so much for real really appreciate it and that is it for this episode of Betcha's Moms podcast please don't forget to rate review and subscribe Apple Spotify wherever you listen to podcasts and follow Betcha's Moms on Instagram follow Dr. Jones everywhere you can follow her not on Facebook and follow us (laughs) Um, I'm at Aileen Brittany is at Britt Rich and remember there are no rules on this podcast I'm not like a regular mom I'm a cool mom right Regina yeah sure are Please stop talking. The Betches Moms podcast is produced by Sean Kilby and Jorge Morales Pico. Editing by Stacey Wong. Social media by Brittany Levine. Guest booking by Nicole Pellegrino. Be sure to follow us at Betches Moms on Instagram and send us your emails to moms at betches.com. Betches.